I'm Andre. And I'm Richard. And this is Rugby Deconstructed. Evening, Richard. Hi, Welcome Andrew. to the stoop. Thank you. How are you doing? No, I'm doing very well. Good, good. First weekend of Super Rugby done? Yeah, no, let's leave that for the other other podcasts. <laughs> let's focus on the concepts of rugby. Yes. So, a few months ago, just after the Rugby World Cup, I did a bit of a troll on Twitter, and I posted a tweet that went, unpopular opinion. It's a myth that Northern Hemisphere Rugby has closed the gap on Southern Hemisphere opponents. Now, the idea behind that tweet was to get a feel of what people think about the gap between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere rugby. And I must admit, I'm torn in two fields. I'm standing in two parts now. Um, one is, I don't think the gap exists, uh, specifically in the modern day era. Or the, the gap does exist, but I don't know how to measure it, you know, so... Even if, the, even if, like somebody said, the gap is closed, the fact is the gap still exists. But I felt we needed to definitely look at the, the concept of the myth between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hem- Hemisphere rugby and why the Southern Hemisphere is so do- uh, dominant. And, you know, I found it extremely a complex subject because there's so many roads we can go down. And so many different areas that you can look at to try and diagnose and understand this problem of, or understand the myth of, of the gap. So I think, uh, I know you uh, researched the history and where this gap came from. And I think that would be a great starting point. From there, then we will move into the criteria of what we need to look at to describe the gap. And is it still... Does it still exist? Did it ever exist? And uh, is it still relevant? Okay, yeah. Well, thanks. So, firstly, what I um, spent some time researching during the week was where did this concept of the gap between North and Southern Hemisphere rugby come from? Where, why was it popularized? And where did the notion come from? And um, what what I could my research almost said is to almost describe it as a modern day tier one, tier two gap that we have at the moment. Now, if we look at the home nations, your England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. In the amateur era, these guys were entrenched in the, in the principles and the ideologies of amateurism. And it actually affected the way that they approached their um, international and domestic rugby. If we look, for example, um, the way that they approached their games in um, in England, Ireland, or in, in the in the um, in the Isles itself, where for some reason their biggest focus was on facing each other off in the Five Nations. The furthest they used to travel was going to Paris to go play France. They um, they would usually host South Africa and New Zealand, and only in a later to a later extent Australia for tours on the islands. But they never left the islands themselves. Your tours were always left to the British and Irish Lions. Now, to give an example of, in modern day terms, what that would equate to, um, using it as, as an example of, of cricket, where we've got the West Indies, it would be the same as the West Indies 
touring Australia this year, playing five test matches in Australia, and then next year Australia comes to the way it goes to the Caribbean. This week they play a test match against Jamaica. Next week they play St Lucia. The week after that they play Barbados. I mean, if we look at those terms, it's it feels almost ridiculous. Um, if you think about it, the first time that a home nation actually played a test match in the Southern Hemisphere was 1961. And the Lions started touring in 1890 already. So if you look at the figures, England, Ireland, Wales and Scotland combined played 22 test matches in South Africa and New Zealand in the same time period that the Lions played 73 test matches against those two Southern Hemisphere nations. Now, where the point comes to you is that where, the, where I felt one of the areas where the myths came from is that these nations never toured on their own. It's almost the same concept as having a Tier 2 nation that all of a sudden never faces quality opposition, comes to a World Cup and gets um, beaten by 40-50 points because they've never been experienced to that. If we look at the dawn of professionalism, where I felt feel the gap was probably exposed to the greatest extent. Okay, 97, we had a British and Irish Lions tour. They were successful down in South Africa, also partly due to the state of Springbok rugby at that time with coaches and administration. But the year after that, 1998, really shows where this gap came from, or where the, where the concept of the gap could actually be explained. We've got the four home nations for the first time in the professional era, touring the Southern Hemisphere individually. Now, I'm going to quickly run through some of the results here. And then so, the, 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 just to be clear, the, the, that 1998 was the first tour under professional yes. structures. First time under the professional era that these teams actually toured. In 96, they didn't bother touring because it was the dawn of professional rugby. 97, we had an alliance tour. So they went back to the same old concept of let's tour down south as the Lions. 98, they undertook tours in their own capacity. Um, England touring New Zealand, Australia and South Africa. Scotland going to Australia. Ireland going to South Africa. Wales coming to South Africa. But if we look at these results from that era. So I'm going to run through a few. And then with the Southern Hemisphere listed first. And then the Northern Hemisphere listed as the uh, following that. So South Africa 18, England 0. New Zealand 64, England 22. New Zealand 40, England 10. South Africa 37, Ireland 13. South Africa 33, Ireland 0. Australia 33, Scotland 11. Australia 45, Scotland 3. Now it gets interesting. Australia 76, England 0. South Africa 96, Wales 13. And then for me, this is probably just a cherry on the on, on the top. Fiji 51, Scotland 26. Jeez. So there you could see a gap was already emerging. I mean, none of these teams... Well, um, that, that shows a gap existed. Existed. The gap existed at that stage. The closest any team could come from the Northern Hemisphere to claim a win was coming within 18 points. Now, any, any international team in that Tier 1 bracket losing to an opposition by 18 points in today's terms would be seen as a hiding. Now, that's the first aspect. Now, where the Southern Hemisphere actually, I, I feel, got it right in those early years in building up and transitioning to professionalism quicker that 
created that big gap was with their local competitions and local leagues. Now, to understand the feeling that the Northern Hemisphere had with these leagues, you can just look at the name uh, the naming of the sport, Rugby Union. It was named Union because the unions governed the sport. Rugby League, that was professional. We didn't touch them. They were playing in leagues. So that's where the difference of the names came from. Now, South Africa started competing in the Curry Cup in 1892. New Zealand started playing the Rand Furley Shield in 1904. The first competitive league fixture in England was played on 5 September 1987. What? Before that, the RFU gave the mandate to the clubs that you organize fixtures against everybody else um, who you want to play against for the year, but there's no formalized club league system. So that's already, if you look at it, it even between New Zealand and England, that's an 83-year gap that needed to be made up in terms of competing. Now compare that to a Tier 1 nation having to make up that gap. That already shows that there was a major gap between going into professionalism. I mean, you think about it, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, they were opposed to the first World Cup because of the concept of professionalism um, hurting their amateur status. Where we all know, I mean, unofficially, most of the Southern Hemisphere sides were getting envelopes off the games for competing, even though they, they maintained their amateur status. I mean, a good example, going back to South Africa, is Donny uh, Gerber accepting a job in Cape Town so he was able to move from the EP to Western Province. No, this is very, very uh, uh, interesting uh, background. And so, you, like what you're saying is basically we've got this, this transition from amateur era to professional era after the 95 World Cup. Yes. That- and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand were already in a, some form of, stru- had already formed a, a structure which allowed this transition to be a lot smoother yeah. Than, than our Northern Hemisphere counterparts. Well, exactly that. And if you look at the way that they structured the domestic rugby, I mean, Super Rugby, or the Super 12, was already announced before the 95 World Cup. After the dawn of professionalism, the Heineken Cup was a hastily arranged competition for sides. And some, some sides were even considering, are they going to compete weeks before the competition? Okay, Richard, criteria. So in starting to pack this together, I decided that when we, when looking at uh, the criteria, we were going to look at New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, England, Ireland, Wales, France, and Scotland as the original Tier 1 teams. And I, I, packed, I unpacked this starting off with one-off wins. And one-off wins, I felt, didn't, doesn't weigh much in in discussing the closing of the gap, specifically in the professional era, because one-off wins do, do, does happen. However, if you compare that to a series win, I, I also struggle to weight that, because in South Africa and New Zealand, there hasn't been a series win. The last series win in South Africa was back in... 93. 93, which, which was, was France. Era, and yes. it was part of the amateur era. But in the professional era, 
South Africa and New Zealand haven't lost a series against at home the against Hemisphere. a Northern Hemisphere opponent. Yeah. They've maybe lost the one-off game. Australia, on the other hand, have recently lost to England, lost to Ireland, and lost the Lions series. New Zealand drew the Lions series. South Africa's lost a Lions series and won a Lions series. But in, um, in the second Lions series, we, we lost the one-off game, the last game. And that was playing a second string team after we had already wrapped up the series. We wrapped up the series in the first two tests. Yeah. The next criteria, which was posted on Twitter and mentioned by a lot of people, was World Cup wins. But I find, I find World Cup wins also doesn't add much to, to breaking down the myth because the first four World Cups were all in the amateur era. And they, the first three, sorry, yes. yeah, that's right, the first three. 99 was the first one in the pro era. So the first three were all won by three Southern Hemisphere powerhouses. The next ones, the only one in the professional era that has been won was won by that awesome England side, which was pretty good. They they yeah. were, give respect to a very good team there. But I think in, what I'm trying to say is when, when I was unpacking this criteria for the myth, it's, it's a lot more complex in trying to gauge and weigh has a team progressed from being bottom of the log to closing the gap on South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand? Well, I think in terms of the World Cup, what I also found there is an interesting analogy to, 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 to um, like you say, use as a benchmark is a top five that has emerged in the World Cup. So it shows there, except for South Africa, Australia, and... Um, and New Zealand, only England and France has actually been able to challenge um, the Southern Hemisphere teams when it mattered in the World Cup. What I mean by when it matters is making the final. Only those two teams have been able to make a final from the Northern Hemisphere. Even looking at knockout games, only they have been able to beat the Southern Hemisphere sides in the knockout games. And even comparing their knockout games to other Euro Northern Hemisphere teams. They've only lost one knockout game to another Northern Hemisphere team or to any, uh, outside of that top five, and that was the 2019 win for Wales over France in the last World Cup. So in terms of, if you look at that, there's almost been a close shop on when it matters, where we had certain sides that rose to the occasion. And from there, it's only been England and France that's actually been able to take the step up in that sense. It's quite interesting what you're saying there because the final criteria that I looked at was rankings. And the rankings started in 2003, mm. official rankings. And the top five teams in order was England, New Zealand, Australia, France and South Africa. The, the top five that emerged at the start of the professional era. At the start of the professional era. Yeah. And funny enough, those are the five teams that have... That have remained in that same... Remained and contested World Cup finals. Yeah. And so, have only lost one knockout game to a team outside of that bracket between them. Yeah. So it's quite interesting that you, you, you mentioned that. So already there, if we have to break, break this into bands... We've already got our top five. 
over the whole period of rug, uh, rankings and World Cup rugby, the top five teams are, as I stated, England, New Zealand, Australia, France, and South Africa. What I find interesting about the rankings is I, I worked out an average from 2011 through to 2019 over a nine-year period. And in that time, I was able to calculate the average position a team would held over this nine-year period. In 2011... New Zealand had just come out of their, what we would call their slump, and was the start of something special for them. And they went on to hold on to the position of number one until this last World Cup. So they're, they're out, and out at the top in, in the, the overall rankings over a nine-year period. Interesting, the second band of teams, ranked second was South Africa. Australia, and then England. We then get to the third band, which makes up Ireland, Wales, and France, which is quite interesting because since the 2015 World Cup, Ireland and Wales have been right there, you know, second, third, fourth in the rankings. Um, so that's just this, this last little period where things have really been coming under Joe Smith and... Warren Gatlin was working for them. But very interestingly, France were ranked behind Ireland and Wales. And then the fourth band made up your, I'd like to call, I call them the quasi-tier one teams of Argentina, Scotland, sorry, Italy and Japan. If I compare this overall ranking for over a nine-year period, and we compare it to when the rankings first took place in 2003. The biggest loser in this ranking is France. No, I agree with you there. And the, the biggest winners, or actually, yeah, the biggest, there's two big winners. The one is South Africa, who moved up, and Wales. But again, the ranking system is slightly flawed. 2003... South Africa were in a massive slump under Rudolf Stroeli. Another uh, factor that influenced South African ranking is the Alistair Kutsia era of two years, where that significantly hampered us. However, if I, carry, if, I, if I just quickly look at the statistics, New Zealand would have still held on to the number one spot. South Africa would have improved on their position but they would have still been second. Um, Australia, funny enough, have remained in third spot. Which is actually funny considering their current slump of form. And their current slump of form over the last two years, they're still holding on to third, third spot. So from 2003 to, 20, to the end of 2019, England have fallen out of the top three positions or ranked now number four, and New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, based on a 10-year period, are still holding on to the top three positions. Well, that's actually funny because I feel England over the last decade or 15 years has actually been quite inconsistent. I mean, you have quite good teams. I mean, you had a Martin Johnson team that actually looked 
to be competitive going into the 2011 World Cup. But then at the beginning of his tenure, after they had just made a final, they had such a huge slump that they actually dropped to eighth in the world rankings. Um, same with Lancaster, building up a team and then going through a slump. And they're not even making it out of their own pool, out of the pool stages in their own home World Cup. And then, exactly, and then you get the Eddie Jones factor again where England go on a run of consecutive test wins. 19, 18 consecutive test wins? 18 consecutive test wins. Oh, we should have checked that up properly. And then still only up into, I think it's 23 or 24 tests, losing only one then. But again, there's an issue with that. And then going in to that, in, in, in that record run of theirs, they never played New Zealand. Yes, they never played New Zealand. They played, and they played... And coming back to yeah. your original story of playing your home nations. Yes, they played their home nations and then, of course, had a, a run of test matches against um, Australia where Michael Checker actually gifted them wins. If you think about the way... 3-0 no win uh, in not, Australia. Not just that. I mean, even when they played at Twickenham, it, Australia were competitive up to a certain point and then all of a sudden they fell apart in the second half and England made it look quite comfortable. But then getting from there, slumping to uh, five consecutive losses from there and, and only from there building up back to the, to the last World Cup final. Now that, now that you mention it, I think that series loss in South Africa actually hurt their rugby quite considerably. Because since then, they actually, they, they've struggled in the Six Nations. They've lost to Scotland, who are currently ranked ninth. And all the holders of the Kolkata Cup, they, they, somebody mentioned the other day on Twitter that they play they they're the most enterprising team in in the world at the moment. Yes. Yet they couldn't win in France this past weekend. So, you know, the results matter. One-off results doesn't mean much. It, it's sustained success. So. One team I really want to talk about at this moment in time is Scotland. Now, they're a tier one team. However, if I remember correctly, they've never ever... Okay, no, I'm, I'm going to lie if I say that. But Scotland rarely beat a tier one team ranked above them. Yeah, it happens, it, it, it happens on the odd occasion. So I know they've beaten Australia... A few times, um, at a, oh, twice now when they were ranked above them. But then, I mean, they'll, they'll follow up a win over Australia with a loss to, to Fiji the following week. Or, um, or getting hammered by Wales a, a, a week before that. So it's that inconsistency that they can't consistently beat teams ranked above them. I mean, leading into the last World Cup, the, uh, the only sides that they could really manage to beat above them was Georgia in two tests leading up to the World Cup. They lost to France, okay, lost to Ireland. Happy days, they beat Samoa and Russia. But by that time, Japan had come, got above them. And again, that whole thing of not being able to beat a team higher than them kicked in again. So there is a psychological aspect, I think, of where they really struggle to come to the party. Uh, sometimes they are competitive, but there's also the sense of Doubts that usually creeps into them get into their game when they're in a strong position, like they almost can't believe that they got there. Yeah, I, I, another thing with Scotland, I, and I can't put my finger on it, but 
we often you often hear commentators and pundits talking about uh, a brave loss. You know, Scotland the brave, and they were so unlucky. Like this past weekend, so unlucky to lose to Ireland. You know, but we've been saying that for 20 years now in the professional era that, you know, Scotland the brave, this brave team. They'll come out to South Africa now later in the year. They will, barring injury, they will bring a relatively strong squad. Their style of rugby is going to be suited for our our dry fields. So they're going to bring a, a great brand of rugby. It's enjoyable to watch Scotland play. But I just I can't put my finger on it why they can't close out games. Why they they very often they put themselves in a winning position and they can't close it close out the game. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they perform against England this week. But the reason I want to bring them up is since two thousand and three to this year, on the first of all in two thousand and three they were ranked ninth. In twenty nineteen. They were ranked ninth. Overall, over a nine-year period, they were ranked eighth. So that's a Northern Hemisphere team that has shown almost zero progress. Looking at France, France were ranked fourth. They now ranked. I think they're seventh or seventh. Yeah. Overall, they ranked seventh. They've fallen back. So now that complicates the statement of the gap between Northern and Hemisphere Rugby when two of two sides have either not progressed or actually moved backwards in the ranking. Yes, France have got an awesome team at the moment, very young. The next four years is going to be very exciting. But if we take... 31st of December 2019 as the mark point. The gap between North and Southern Hemisphere rugby still exists. Yeah, and I feel as you say the the, the French team, their their regression. It's almost like the moment the top the top fourteen started going from strength to strength. French rugby itself started going going backwards. It's almost like the clubs are bigger than the national team, which is something that I think that's impacted France. But as you say, rightly say, with a bunch of youngsters coming through from two successful uh, consecutive under um, under twenty World Cup wins, they've used they're using that as a springboard. Guys that know how to beat South African, New Zealand, and English teams are now getting to the point where they are taking that next step up na- into the national arena, and um, we I think we can start seeing a French recovery. Um, Maybe you can elaborate. Is it something that they've done on the leagues that they've that they've maybe started realizing that they can't cater for all these um, foreigners that they've been used used to catering for for the last few years? I think the the first aspect is France, the their top fourteen teams. Those are professional outfits, and those teams are extremely good. They've got Fijians, Kiwis, South Africans, and those teams are extremely strong. So I think the initial issue and problem there was that the French players weren't getting enough game quality game time. And those players then were pushed down into the pro the, the D two league. I think now what they've done is I think what France have done 
and I'm speculating here, they know they've got 2023 World Cup and they obviously want to put a good team together. So they've gone on the long-term plan to recovery. And they said, okay, we're going to have to build up. Fabian Galtier, he cut the, he cut the rotten wood away. He, he out of the old, in with the new. And these youngsters, like you mentioned now, have been, have been winning it under 17, under 18, under 19, under 20 levels. So it, these youngsters know how to win. And what's interesting is a lot of these youngsters have been pushed into D2 teams and are now be, being picked up slowly by the, the top 14 teams. So I think their, their second tier rugby the, the, is, is that being used as a development step? As a the, development step, as you know, they've put in a lot of effort to make sure that those teams are extremely strong. There's money being pumped into there, and sure, one of those sides might get promoted, and they will get pumped by one of those bigger teams. But that side being promoted is very likely. I don't have facts on this, but that that the the team being promoted is very likely going to be filled with a bunch of French youngsters. Mm-hmm who are going to get the opportunity to play against quality South African players, quality Kiwis, quality okay. Fijians. On the flip side, on the other side of the pond, England, on the other hand, they're struggling to find a scrum off because they've got New Zealanders, they've got at least three South Africans currently playing week in and week out. Yeah, Fafta Clare from Corbus Reinach talked about And Francois Hochot. Francois Hochot's name gets mentioned often yeah, that he's they, had a great game. Those three scrum offs are keeping... Three English scrum offs, scrum offs out of the game. So, what's the quality of the championship? Well, that's a big thing. If you actually look at that, um, I've, I've, I think I've spoken about this before. Um, the problem that professional rugby or club rugby in the, in England has is that they've got um, twenty teams playing over across two professional leagues, but you've got thirteen that are incredibly strong and seven that are. Um, that are competitive against each other, but the gap between the top 13 clubs and the bottom seven is massive. Um, To the extent where a team from the Premiership gets relegated, the the next year they'll have an unbeaten season in the Championship. It's happened more often than not that they go through unbeaten and just take the place of the the team dropping down. So the problem I think is coming in is that the, the Championship is not getting stronger. It's actually, there's a gap between um, the, the championship teams actually challenging the, the top 13 clubs in, in England. I think what we've stumbled on here is depth, is player depth. Um, one of the things that uh, we, we both highlighted in, in our preparation is coaching. And if you look at the Six Nations at the moment, not barring France, not one of those countries, oh, I'd lie, barring France and Scotland, yeah, not uh, one of those countries, okay, yeah, I've, Ireland's so, got an Englishman, but that's a different story. Ireland have an Englishman, yeah, they've got Andy Farrell, New Zealand, uh, Wales, Wales have got a New Zealander, New Zealander, Italy's got a South African, and yeah, England's got Eddie Jones. England's got an Australian. So, you know, like, what I find it quite amazing, because last week we were talking about how great their structures are for developing South African talent, uh, you know, for, for, for our use. 
and how they exploit our talent. But yet the the coaches on the, the, those coaching structures aren't producing coaches to take on the national sides. Well, that's or to exactly, take charge yeah. of the national sides. Well, that's exactly, and that's a point I think for another day. We look at South Africa seems to me to be in the business of exporting rugby players. We New Zealand are currently in the business of exporting rugby coaches, and uh, we're getting a few minds like Franco Smith and um, okay to extend Gary Gold being exported, but yeah, so it, it it's it's almost like the the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, is actually assisting the northern hemisphere in closing that gap on their yeah. on their side. So, Richard, we've spoken quite a bit here. Um, I really, uh, honestly, at the at the start of this, I wanted to believe that this gap actually doesn't exist, but I think we've presented enough evidence that one in 1998 the gap there was a gap when you look at the results that you you listed if we look at the rankings from 2003 through to 2019 there's a clear distinction in in the gap we then move from there we've tried to justify those observations by looking at the club structures, the talent structures, and what was the uh, and series of wins, you know, home and away, who, who they played, when they play, um, and I, I still think there's a lot more we probably could have touched on this when it comes. To, are they playing at the beginning of the season? Are they playing at the end of the season? We haven't even spoken about. Um, end of year tours versus mid year tours, start of the season, end of the season. Or must we have a world, um, a one world, season. a global season? We haven't even taken that into account. But just looking at face value at the start of the rankings, the 2019 rankings, the losses they took in tw- uh, 1998, and the, the inconsistency of one off wins and series wins. The, the gap definitely does exist. No, definitely I agree with you there. And I mean, okay, one point of argument that I, I think most Northern Hemisphere pundits would make is to say that your um, Wales, the, the Welsh wins over South Africa and Australia uh, over the last uh, three years. But if you look at that, statistically that, that has been the most successful period in Welsh rugby. It was a common a culmination of 12 years of Warren Gatland and that coincided with statistically the worst time in South African rugby history and take that into account that three of those four tests were played outside of a test window so the best teams couldn't have been chosen which leads to these surprise one-off or we, we okay you can't say it's surprise but these one-off results are usually factors that take into into account when you get tests being played outside of those windows. So, um, I mean, another example and the the effect that those had is that I think for the first time that Scotland had won in Australia in in something like 30-odd years was a test played on a Wednesday night because they had to make space for it in the the schedules. So, I mean, those factors into account... 
looking at that and unpacking that, we can actually see that the, these results seem more like outliers than actual consistent evidence of a gap being closed. So it will be interesting to see what Wayne Pivak would do with Wales going forward and if he can sustain that. And um, I mean, Ireland have been steadily improving. We, we, have, we have to give them that. Um, I think we haven't touched too much on Ireland. That's true, we haven't. But uh, if, you, if, I, if I look at the rankings, they, they've moved up. They Well, they have. No, yeah. oh, they, they've remained basically fifth in the rankings. So yeah. six, they've remained six, sorry. There we go, six. Yeah. They've remained six in the rankings. So, but yes, in the last four years, there's definitely been some great improvement. It's going to be interesting to see how they go in the next four years as players start retiring and the, the youngsters start coming through. But they've got very good structures in place. Well, yes, there's actually an interesting trend I've picked up with Irish rugby um, over the last few World Cup cycles. It's um, it's almost as if a year after a World Cup, Irish rugby, they usually go through a, a, a mini slump where they drop to about 7th or 8th in the world rankings. And usually in Alliance year for some reason, uh, strange enough, they, that's when they start picking up again. And that's where they show a, a slight improvement and then leading up to a World Cup. That's where Ireland is always touted as a contender in the World Cup. But then look at the year or the 18 months after that, they go through another slump. So they've been steadily improving, but they've almost, they go through a small slump and then improve and then from their slump again and improve. So yeah. it will be interesting to see also how they will go through the Andy Farrell um, era now in terms of these small slumps and improvements from there. What's interesting is in 2003, they were ranked sixth. In 2019, they were ranked fifth. However, that also coincides with a, a drop in the standard and the quality of France and Ireland. Um, oh, yeah, France and? Sorry, France and Australia. Yeah, well, my, correct, yeah. yeah, France and Australia, my bad. Well, even if you look at the... Um, I mean, I was in high school when the, the rankings were released for the first time. And, I mean, the biggest controversy at the rankings, the, the day that the rankings were announced, Ireland were ranked third in the world. So... From September 2003, when the rankings were launched, up until the end of 2003, when these figures were taken, they had already gone from third down to sixth in the world rankings. So even there, you could see that it was it already played a role in the inconsistency on where they were actually placed in that rankings. So in conclusion, the gap does exist. Yeah, and it does. I would like I would like to end off by saying. It's irrelevant if you lose by 76 points or you lose by one point. A miss is as good as a mile. No, that's true. I mean, um, New Zealand are touted as the, they, they're the two 2011 World Cup winners, even though on the day the French were probably, uh, you, you could argue, played a better game, but they still lost by a point. And that was the start of a, a, an era of dominance for New Zealand. That's correct. Anyway, Richard, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. And until we, we meet again to, do, uh, to deconstruct another concept on, on the rugby field. Perfect. See you then. This episode was researched and hosted by Andre and Richard. Rugby Deconstructed, hosted on Anchor. Available on Google Podcast, Apple and Spotify. 
Music supplied by Anchor. Cover art by Andre. Produced by My Rugby Posts. This is a self-funded pod for the love of the game.